happening. Okay, hello, and welcome to the 83rd Annual Academy Awards. Hi everyone, welcome to Oscar Wild, a podcast about film always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rookrout. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we have an exciting pod for multiple reasons. We'll be talking about the 2011 Oscars, which honor the 2010 Best Picture nominees. This is when the King's Speech won. Yeah, exciting and not exciting stuff right there. We will get to perhaps one of the biggest travesties in Oscar history. Maybe not. We'll see how we feel about that. So our guest today is a fellow film and television awards prognosticator who might even love the Oscars more than we do here at Oscar Wilde. He is a writer at Gold Derby and Awards Watch, having written over 800 articles, contributed to site awards discussion videos and podcasts, and interviewed numerous actors, including Laverne Cox, Maya Rudolph, Sterling K. Brown, Carrie Coon, and many more. He hosts the podcast, and the runner-up is where he highlights the probable runner-up for Best Picture throughout Oscars history. Please welcome Kevin Jacobson. Hey, thanks so much. I'm excited to talk about a very odd year at the Oscars. Kevin, we'd love to hear from you, I think. What got you into the Oscars? When did you start watching them? When did that love really begin for you? Uh, So I feel like I first became conscious of Oscars in 2003 when The Lord of the Rings, you know, it was already been nominated for The Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers, but then here comes The Return of the King and it gets this, you know, big sweep of 11 wins and... Just as like a a young teen watching it, I just felt like, oh, wow, like this fantasy film that I don't usually associate with Oscars is getting the recognition that it deserves. And that's kind of cool. But then I think it really sort of blossomed in 2006 when I really felt strangely passionate about Little Miss Sunshine and took like a weird ownership of it and sort of like considered it an underdogs type of film that also didn't feel like an Oscar movie, but sort of got Mm -hmm. there. And I was so excited on nomination morning. And that was also the year that, you know, Dreamgirls was snubbed of Best Picture. And I just remember just like all of the drama of that just really sort of drew me in for whatever reason. And, you know, Martin Scorsese finally getting his director win that he's deserved for so long. Just all of that sort of combined really just hooked me. And then since then, I've just followed the race so much more intensely than I ever did before that. So, uh, yeah, here I am. Little Miss Sunshine was probably the first indie film to, like, get that much recognition, right? Yeah. Or at least, like, an indie comedy like that. I mean, there's still been, like, independent films, like Fargo, for example, had been nominated before. But, like, a movie with that kind of, like, Sundance flavor to it just had not been acknowledged before that. And then it just kind of opened up the floodgates. And we love Tony Collette here. I will (laughs) say, too, near the beginning of quarantine, that was a movie that I watched. And I hadn't watched it in years. And it was just an unexpected boost of serotonin that I needed. So any of our listeners, if you haven't watched Little Miss Sunshine yet or just need to watch it again, highly recommend. Absolutely. So starting with the ceremony, we had the notorious for me hosts of James Franco and Anne Hathaway. How do both of you feel about them? Because I rewatched videos and I couldn't make it through the video without feeling so uncomfortable. 
Yeah, so Anne Hathaway, innocent <laughs> in my eyes. Um, I think all of the blame can be put on James Franco for just not really giving much effort at all for some reason to this most important sort of gig in his career almost and just kind of leaving her hanging, I felt. I don't know. I felt really similarly with Anne. It was one of those things where you could tell she was just trying really hard. It reminded me of like a woman introducing her bad boyfriend to her family where she's just kind of overcompensating and really trying her hardest. And he just was so aloof and just staring kind of off into the distance the whole time, not even really looking out at the audience. One other thing that she did that just made me laugh, she just would do these really loud offbeat claps. She would clap really loudly for the guests. And you would just hear it over the music even. And Mm. it was so distracting to me to watch. (laughs) Anne was the youngest host. She was 28 at the time when they introduced Kirk Douglas. And James Franco's clapping also resonated over the music. And it was very loud in the microphone. I still don't know just like what the meeting was. That sort of how they landed on these two specifically as Mm. hosts. Had they done things together before that? Not that I can recall. It just seemed like such a random pairing that was just like, were they just sort of focus testing and seeing like, what's the younger generation? How would would like Anne Hathaway, who's been in so many rom-coms, and then James Franco, Mm -hmm. who's been in these like stoner comedies. Is this just going to bring in all the younger generation to the Oscars? And like on paper, I can sort of, I guess, see it, but... But in theory, in execution, obviously, it completely bombed. Right. What was interesting to me watching back with having these younger actors as hosts is that there's that moment where Anne Hathaway brings out Billy Crystal and he gets a standing ovation to talk about Bob Hope hosting the Oscars. And you just have this collective sigh almost where you wish that Billy Crystal was hosting the Oscars instead and then you're honoring these great hosts of the past while you have this kind of tremendous failure going on right in front of you right it's like now we're in good hands you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) when they came out to like initially introduce the ceremony I couldn't tell if it was a bit or if they were actually starstruck She ended up flubbing Sandra Bullock's introduction at one point. It was just so hard to watch. Definitely cringy. Are there any other moments from the ceremony that for both of you come up as particularly great moments or moments that you find iconic when you think about this Oscar ceremony in particular? I mean, there is the Melissa Leo of it all, and I'm sure we'll get into that. (laughs) (laughs) She is just doing the absolute most at all times. And just truly, like, I mean, she had won every precursor up to that point like there was no suspense (laughs) and yet she is acting like her name was called on the price is right it was just like what are we doing With her, too, I totally forgot that after her speech, she takes Kirk Douglas's cane. I mean. And is, like, walking off with it. Yes, and just, like, sort of self-consciously swearing in my eyes. Like, it didn't seem totally, like, accidental there, just saying. No, she, because Kirk was, like, delaying announcing who won, and I think she was getting so impatient. You can see it in her face, so she's, like, Mm -hmm. trying to stay elegant and poised, and once she wins, she's finally like aghast with shock and it's like oh my god come on you knew you were gonna get this and walking up and acting all nervous and swearing I think it didn't seem entirely genuine but 
I like appreciate the effort she put into it to like seem like it was this big moment. Because I feel like she hadn't really had that. Obviously, she never had that level of success before in her career being on this big stage that sometimes this is what happens. It's just a mess. And <laughs> you look back on it and you just, uh, I mean, I don't remember how people were feeling necessarily at the time about her and her whole consider campaign and that speech. But I feel like 10 years later, it just, I don't know, maybe people appreciate it for like a camp sort of thing. Like she's just <laughs> so over the top that you can almost appreciate it now. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's true. So let's get into the nominees. This year we had the King's Speech, of course, as the Best Picture winner. The other nominees included 127 Hours, Black Swan, The Fighter, Inception, The Kids Are All Right, The Social Network, Toy Story 3, True Grit, and Winter's Bone. We had 10. Was this our first 10 ever? This was the second year of 10. Was it 09 that was the first one? Yep, at least in the modern era. They did have 10 in like the 40s and 30s, but yes. So thinking about those that I just listed without getting into, I think, specific movies too much, like as a collective, what do you think of when you think of that group? I personally love this group of nominees just because I feel like I've talked about this a, a bit on my podcast, but I kind of like it when the Oscars can represent what critics like and consider the best of the year and also have a consideration of like audience and how so many of these films, Toy Story 3, Inception, uh, even The Social Network, The King's Speech was like a huge shockingly huge hit the fighter black swan like true grit i mean so many of these movies made almost a hundred million dollars or well Mm -hmm. past a hundred million dollars and there's such like a diversity in types of films that they are we have like an action film there's an animated film there's these little indie comedies there's big oscar bait obviously and there's kind of something for everyone it's a nice kind of hodgepodge of nominees that i really love this particular lineup more than most of the modern era for that reason and it bums me out that um after this they decided to move to a sliding scale of you know between five and ten nominees where we would usually get like eight or nine and it was Mm -hmm. all about getting a top five rather than a top ten with the voting being what it was and so i think films that were smaller like winter's bone just would not be able to get to that sort of top five without that and now we're back to a top 10 yeah so it's kind of exciting for mm-hmm. those smaller pictures to get in there again and speaking of box office this was the second year after 2009 again of having the highest box office on the day of nominations being announced so the combined total of nominees made 1.4 billion dollars compared to 09's 1.7 billion which is huge best picture winners at least aren't necessarily big box office hits but this year across the board almost everything was and it takes me back to a while ago on an episode we read through how back in like the 40s mm-hmm. and the 50s like the pre-steven spielberg days the best picture winners would line up with the box office numbers for that year i also love when years like this come up where you do get a good variety of nominees but you also get those big box office hits throughout that like looking at inceptions numbers and toy story 3 of course i remember those movies being huge hits at the time but i also remember when I watched this year's Oscars 
yes, I'm excited for the Oscars every year, but this was a really cool one because you got to watch a ceremony where you knew that most people had seen a lot of the big movies that were going to win. Yeah, and even the winners, you know, they all came from movies that were like $100 million hits, so there was a recognition to them. And I believe six out of the 10 nominees ended up winning at least one award throughout the night, which I think is big too. I feel like in more modern days, there is a little more spreading of the wealth, and I almost wonder Mm -hmm. if this was a year that sort of kicked off this decade where we didn't really have a lot of big sweeps in the 2010s that I can recall. And ironically, the ones that sort of did sweep were movies like La La Land and Gravity, which didn't actually win Best Picture. So I do appreciate the Academy for actually spreading the wealth and not just giving, you know, 11 wins to something. I agree. And it's interesting, too, to think about before this, I think a lot of the big sweeps happened because of he who must not be named Harvey Weinstein with Miramax. (laughs) And this ceremony is kind of the beginning of the end of Harvey in my mind, right? You have the King speech and then the following year you have the artist, but his influence and power and just that horror still lingers over the Oscars in a very big way, but you don't have the large swath of nominations anymore for Miramax, of course, of those days, and then the Weinstein Company that just kind of started to disappear in the 2010s. Yeah, unfortunately, we do still see some of the, I guess, people who were inspired by Weinstein and his very shady campaigning tactics. We still do see that Mm -hmm. in other studios, even to this day, unfortunately, but I guess not as aggressive or ugly, but still, you know, taking some of the little tricks from him. For sure. He also had the fighter from this year, and it was just funny watching Colin First's acceptance speech where he thanks Harvey for taking him on 20 years ago. But mentioning and the runner-up is Kevin you spoke about Harvey and his campaigning on a previous podcast on the social network which we'll obviously get into later on and how he used his campaign to kind of take over and win for King's speech over this like emotional connection to the picture versus a more technical one with the social network right it's it's it was an emotional appeal you know framing it as the King speech is the movie that makes you feel, which is kind of like a cringy thing that we look back on, but somehow that ended up working. So uh, yeah, and you know, contrasting it to the social network being like the cold, cerebral critics pick that's like, oh, like you're supposed to like this, but also there's this other movie though that's like, this is the one that is going to like make your heart sing basically. And he did the same thing with Shakespeare in Love and Saving Private Ryan. So it's a tried and true tactic. And in some ways it's still kind of has been in play like I said with like the Green Book Roma situation that was kind of similar so yeah no, I know Green Book. <laughs> so many things I don't want to get into I know I know right I, I'm like oh why did I bring up Harvey this early in the recording <laughs> yeah unfortunately he's all over this race so it's hard yeah. to really dance around it for sure and with that let's get into the King speech the King speech one best picture was nominated for 12 Oscars. It won four. Picture, director for Tom Hooper, actor for Colin Firth, and original screenplay. If you haven't watched the King's Speech, the IMDb description here, the story of King George VI, his impromptu ascension to the throne of the British Empire in 1936, and the speech therapist who helped the unsure monarch overcome his stammer. How do both of you feel about this movie? Um, here's what I'll say. I think that this movie does get slightly a bad rap 
and people are way more vicious about it than if it was just like a nice movie that came out that you went to see with your grandparents and you all had a nice time and you said that was cute and then you forgot about it two minutes later. I mean, maybe if it was even nominated for Best Picture, but it didn't win. I think it's just, you know, the fact that it wins Best Picture, it just immediately sets it up for scrutiny as has happened to so many Best Picture winning films. But I mean, it's a sweet movie. I mean, it's not particularly well directed, I wouldn't say. I think the Tom Hooper Best Director win is preposterous, to be quite honest, (laughs) especially in retrospect, as we know, considering what he would continue to make in the 2010s. But it was such a (laughs) massive hit with the older crowd that, you know, I'm sure the older members of the Academy were just head over heels for this. I mean, it it really is one of those preeminent cases of like, yes, we respect this film that the critics say is good, but then this other film, this is the one that makes us feel. And it's just very easily digestible, kind of heartwarming message. You know, Colin Firth and Jeffrey Rush, I would say they're quite charming together. And then the big climactic moment is very rousing and it leaves you on a high. So I sort of get it in theory, even though I I think it's admittedly kind of an embarrassing win when you consider the rest of this competition. I don't think it's a bad movie. Again, kind of everything you've said. It's upsetting that it won compared to some of these other nominees. I think the score makes this movie so emotional and so you can connect to it. Everything is just like, okay, for me. You know, in the end, it's like, okay, that was a good film. And then I do kind of forget about it. I watched this a couple weeks ago and I still like feel about it the same way that I did years ago when I watched it. I don't rewatch it, but I do like the score. I did study a lot to the score in college. So <laughs> there, you go. there are parts that I do like. I agree. It's not a bad movie. When I was rewatching it this time, and I think it is important to note that I hadn't watched it since I saw it in theaters back then, but Mm -hmm. it reminded me a lot of The Darkest Hour back from 2017, where I just thought, okay, if this movie was just a nominee, if it didn't win Best Picture, I would think of it in the exact same way that I would think about Darkest Hour, you know, potentially near the bottom of the preferential ballot, at least how it's in my mind, and just a kind of inconsequential wartime film. So the only bad things I really have to say about it are just because it lost to the other films here, a lot of them that I do really love and think of really fondly as good rewatches yeah it just feels like a really classic case of like voting for the movie that you like at the time but you don't really think about like how this is going to look in the future <laughs> like how this mm-hmm. is going to have like a lasting impact on cinema I mean I don't know how academy members really think about this kind of thing with best picture but I have to imagine some faction of them are thinking about like what will this mean for future moviegoers who watch all the best picture winners and they see this and they're like there's literally nothing special about this there's nothing advancing the medium i mean it's fine but like when you look at the rest of the nominees most of them are doing such innovative and interesting things that have stood the test of time and yet we're just kind of like looking at the present rather than the future i guess with this i feel like there's so many different things to consider when you're voting you know if i were an academy member <laughs> um and you do have these articles that come out about anonymous honest voting and how it 
some of them are kind of deplorable in how they rationalize their voting. But in thinking of prosperity and the future of film, we couldn't have known how big social media would stand in the 2010s and today and how much we even have to go in this realm. And that social network would stand way longer than King's Speech. But even Toy Story 3 was a huge animated film at the time, probably the best push to win Best Picture. There were just so many. And looking back now, especially, it's like, wow, options. (laughs) choices were made yes they really were and i think with that do we want to get into our top fives let's do it kevin you're up yes okay well my number five is probably the one that sort of just snuck into the best picture race i would imagine and that is winter's bone yeah so i guess i'll just talk about it here i don't know if anyone else has that on their top five it did not make it i don't okay i do have opinions though so you can can talk about it okay great so this one just really uh i guess it just snuck up on me and I, and I have such a distant memory of like being on a, uh, a forum and I think it was Awards Watch and everyone was just talking about this little indie film Winter's Boat and it had this actress that I'd never heard of called Jennifer Lawrence. And I'm just like, who is this Jennifer Lawrence person? And how is she getting <laughs> awards attention? You know, it just came out of nowhere. This tiny little indie about people in the Ozarks that I don't want to say I was totally dismissive of it, but I sort of remember being like, well, maybe it's good, but it, it seems like it's a little small and like indie for the Academy Awards and it's full of unknown actors, unknown at the time. So then I finally got around to watching it after it got the four Oscar nominations and I was actually quite taken with it and I felt like the atmosphere was really um, something that drew me in and it's kind of like haunting and dark and very stark and I feel like Deborah Granick just really created such a mood you know without really overtly making it feel like a narrative film it almost felt like a documentary in some parts just in terms Mm -hmm. of the authenticity and how grounded it was and it's also kind of a brutal movie at the same time of just like really showing some real darkness and it's sometimes uncomfortable to watch but I found it to be very very truthful and that Jennifer Lawrence you know not having the baggage that some people might have with her now I was just really quite taken with this actress who just felt so naturalistic and um you know kind of doing the de-glam thing but really making her character feel authentic I don't know this is one that I watched again for this because I hadn't seen it in many many years it's not like a movie that I throw on at the end of a long work day by any means because it's a (laughs) tough watch But yeah, I just have always been sort of taken with the dark, moody atmosphere of the movie. So that's why it's my number five. I didn't really give this much thought back in the day, but I will say on rewatch, I loved it so much more. I found it so appealing. And I mean, the actors, even John Hawks did an amazing job. Jennifer Lawrence, obviously. I I don't know why, but I always feel like Melissa Leo is in this movie. She like, (laughs) she fits this like gritty nature and and she was in Frozen River, which she got nominated for too, and similar vibe. But I love the like detective nature of this film and how she's hunting down her dad and almost in like a Chloe Zhao docufiction kind of way. It plays really well and it is harrowing to watch at points. Watching Jennifer Lawrence get beat up is terrifying, but it's a great film. It narrowly didn't make my top five, so it wasn't like number 10. (laughs) Yeah, so candidly, this was my number six, so it almost made it in. I really enjoyed the rewatch 
everything that you said. I love the mood and the tone of it. Funny little side story. I've been watching Survivor Kageyan at the same oh, time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and I kept thinking about how Jennifer Lawrence in this movie, if I could put any character from these nominees on a Survivor tribe with me, I would probably pick her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she can cook. She can hunt. Yeah. <laughs> she can provide for you. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I was so inspired by her character in this. And I think the performance taps into those really realistic films almost from the 70s where you would have these women just kind of showing everything all of their emotions and Jennifer Lawrence in this movie is quite good you really understand how she has this ingenue appeal but also this actress who really can bring out so many different types of characteristics in her performances that you'll see later on yeah and it's just again just so wild to watch this movie in a very different context of appreciating Jennifer Lawrence 10 years later, where it's just such a world of difference between where she was then and and where she is now. And she still, to me, feels like just like a regular kind of working actress here without that baggage. I don't know. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's a very unique kind of performance Mm -hmm. in her filmography that I think is easily her best nomination. I don't know how the group feels about Jennifer Lawrence as a whole, but, you know, it's obviously so different from all the David O. Russell movies that she's done, which are so, like, heightened and loud you know I think too one thing I struggle with with Jennifer Lawrence later on in her career is that I feel like with those David O. Russell movies she's so typecast in that type of role and a lot of them they're barely distinguishable for me Joy isn't that much different than Silver Linings Playbook with the performances that she's giving there so I like the stripped down Mm -hmm. indie J-Law from before. Yeah, I'd like to see more of it. She's been around, but she's been less prevalent than she was during that time in like the early 2010s. So I'm excited for her to come back. She has Elizabeth Holmes coming up with the Bad Blood film. (laughs) And that's separate from the Adam McKay movie, which her red wig came out, right? (laughs) Some stills from that film. Yes, with the bangs. Yes, it's a lot. (laughs) and that cast to me too of that adam mckay movie it feels like the film twitter version of the new spider-man it's like they just keep adding people again and again and again and like leonardo dicaprio is attached i'm just so curious what this thing is going to be especially after the wig oh my god (laughs) this is also really random just uh while we're on winter's bone but i don't know if either of you have seen hillbilly elegy yet (laughs) But for some reason, I thought of Hillbilly Elegy while I was rewatching Winter's Bone in the sense of like, this is such a world of difference of, you know, really just being so much more authentic with Winter's Bone. And I almost wonder what a Deborah Granick could have done with something like Hillbilly Elegy and actually like treated its characters with respect and didn't Mm -hmm. feel like it was completely judging them. Yeah, I don't know. That's another story, but just wanted to throw that out there. I haven't seen it yet. I've kind of been procrastinating, but we'll be discussing next week on the pod. So there you go. I'll be forced to soon enough. (laughs) I love Glenn deeply. I love Amy a lot. We're not going to disparage them in that episode. But what I will say about Hillbilly Elegy that I think you you really hit the nail on the head with the authenticity of Deborah Granick. We saw it again in Leave No Trace, the one that just came out a couple years ago that I really liked. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing with Hillbilly Elegy is it very much feels like a movie made by Hollywood people for Hollywood people about this type of group. And then you have something like Winter's Bone, which just feels like really gritty and in it 
and non-judgmental. And yeah, I agree with you. I think mm. I would have liked to see a director like Deborah Granick try with this story. Alas. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so my number five, I didn't really expect to make it on my list, but my number five is True Grit by the Coen Brothers. I really loved this on rewatch, and I think at the time when I saw it, the standout thing about it was just that Haley Steinfeld was really great in it, and that still holds up for me. And to be that young and in the part, I think she's 13. I think you can make the case that True Grit is the biggest piece of Oscar bait that the Coens have made, but... What I like is that they are really good at this seamless blend of their own style and language with the pre-existing material. This is a remake. It had been made before, and I think that they are really good at taking that existing material in a similar way that they did with McCarthy's words in No Country for Old Men and making it their own, really tapping into that humor, but also the true nature of what a Western really is. And every time that I've watched this, I always think, maybe I'll get into Westerns. And that doesn't really happen ever, but <laughs> this one just really does work for me. And I do have to say to Deacons, uh, the Deacons of it all of here. It was mm-hmm. his last film that was shot on film before going to digital. And I think you can just really tell with these beautiful shots. I am also a sucker for the ending. I really love the ending. It really works here. So True Grit, my number five. Did either of you have this on your list? Uh, Just like you swapped, I uh, had it at number six. So (laughs) I also had True Grit at number five. I really do have to applaud Roger Deakins here and the Coen brothers, especially in the writing department uh, where they adapted the script. I think the language is beautiful and just the development of the action creating this thrilling atmosphere in a western which I also do not always identify with in film and can be hard to watch it's reminiscent of this old Hollywood kind of like Winter's Bone I like this a lot more on rewatch now that I am not 19 watching these films and (laughs) makes a world of difference (laughs) yeah I'm also not really a big westerns guy so I guess that's everyone here but I I, again to echo what you both said I really respect ones that are like the top of their genre and I feel like this is probably one of them especially of the modern era not that we see a lot of westerns in the modern era anymore but I think that the Coens really do understand, you know, what makes this genre so thrilling. Also, I'm just glad it exists because the 1969 version with John Wayne is solid, but it actually kind of changes some stuff from the novel that kind of does away a little bit more with Maddie Ross and the the Haley Steinfeld character. And here she's just like, you know, front and center and it is completely Mm -hmm. her story. And it has a really beautiful, bittersweet ending. I agree. It's also more violent. It's allowed to be more Mm -hmm. violent so it kind of is able to indulge in that yeah a lot less sanitized than the 69 version but yeah impeccably crafted roger deacon cinematography is like this perfect blend of grittiness (laughs) and just like that real like rich beautiful detail with the landscapes Mm-hmm. And Haley Steinfeld is performing category fraud. So we can talk about that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's where I was just thinking of going next. Of yep. just, this is such an egregious case of category fraud to me. I'm happy that she, of course, got in to Best Supporting Actress, got her nomination. But this is such a lead performance she carries this film and yes Mm -hmm. okay Jeff Bridges is going back to and making the John Wayne 
best actor win role his own but this is Haley's movie I feel so how do you guys feel about that I guess we know why it happened but (laughs) just how do you feel not great (laughs) (laughs) I don't typically endorse category fraud and I feel like this Mm -hmm. is something that um, (laughs) has been with the Oscars for so long this idea of like child performances how they always have to be in supporting for some reason almost always going back to like Tatum O'Neill which is another obvious example of like that is completely her movie and yet somehow she is a supporting actress okay logically it doesn't make sense and it's like this weird carryover where only like stars were in the lead categories back in like the super early days of the oscars and then you know the character actors and the up-and-comers were in supporting and like that's like the randomly the one thing that has consistently carried over to the modern era and i do not understand it other than just jostling for a, a spot where like the lead actress category is so stacked that i guess they were just they felt like it would be such a risk to put her in lead actress which it would but I mean it it would have been because again it's like she's competing against so many actual stars and it's such one of my favorite best actress categories that I do think she would struggle to get in but the film got Mm -hmm. 10 nominations the academy clearly loved it so maybe she did have a chance I recently rewatched Rabbit Hole the Nicole Kidman Mm. movie and was really struck by her performance there but I am wondering if this would be a case where if Haley would have been run and lead if like you said the sheer number of nominations for True Grit could have actually carried her into that group and yes Nicole Kidman is a big name but that movie was much smaller and if she could have gotten a spot in there and maybe edged her out if that's maybe the fifth spot. I think that would have come down to campaign alone. Mm -hmm. Michelle Williams sneaking in here is one of my favorite additions but again a film that otherwise wasn't recognized at the Academy Awards, which is horrible in my opinion, but <laughs> I love Blue Valentine. Yeah, I could return to Blue Valentine on any day despite its terribly depressing nature, but I think it could have been possible for Haley to sneak in instead of Nicole Kidman, even despite Nicole Kidman's name and draw, especially for Academy voters. Yeah, but do we feel like she deserved to sneak into the top five? What do we think? I don't know if we've all seen all the performances here. I assume we have. I don't think so. Oh, that pains me to <laughs> and say. And that is why they put her in supporting. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, if this is our like three minutes to talk about the kids are all right, I think she could have beat out Annette Benning too. I don't know. I, I think maybe a part of me hopes that she could have, but I'm glad she got in whatever category she was. I'm allowing the category fraud nature here. Maybe there was only room for one newcomer in the case of Jennifer Lawrence, you know. I think that would be asking too much of the Academy to want to kind of turn it over and put all of these newcomers in would be crazy. I think I just also think of the emotional weight of those performances that got in. I would say The Kids Are All Right isn't my favorite of the bunch. I do love Annette Benning, so I, I would feel guilty telling her to get out of the group and make room for Haley Steinfeld there. But I think if we're thinking about Blue Valentine and Winter's Bone, we will talk about Natalie at great length. But mm-hmm. the work that went into those performances is just, I think, very mature even with very young women getting nominated in some cases that I feel like while Haley Steinfeld carries true grit the performance doesn't measure up in the same way for me as those five 
Yeah, I mean, if it was a weaker category, like literally the following year, to be quite frank, probably she could have gotten in, you know? It's just she fell into a very difficult year, so. Another reason why these Oscars are fun to talk about. I love an Oscar year with great Best Actress nominations. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not a weak one in the bunch. Always the best discussion. I think this is the saddest loss of the night, though, because it had 10 nominations and didn't win any. That the Academy loved it so much is really heartbreaking. And then putting the box office in there too it made 252 million worldwide which is such a huge number nuts since gangs of new york right that was the big one before that went Mm -hmm. for a goose egg yep and then the irishman just did (laughs) so (laughs) god scorsese you didn't think he'd made true grit (laughs) i know right (laughs) okay well my number four is toy story three I mean, if only for the trash compactor scene, which will always be stuck in my head for as long as I live. Totally. (laughs) I mean, you know, intellectually, you know that they're like, they're probably going to be okay. But like at the time, Mm -hmm. it's just so harrowing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this came out right after my first year of college. So this was just about right in the sweet spot of like, you know, growing up on the first two Toy Story movies, watching Mm -hmm. those over and over. I had the toys. I played the video games. Like I was fully in the Toy Story world. (laughs) And I actually remember seeing this with a group of high school friends. And we were all just a mess after that. We were just like, okay, I guess we're gonna... We're going to go now. (laughs) I mean, this is like a movie that's all about transitions and change and like, you know, making peace with your past, basically, and just like acknowledging that it's time to move on and very profound themes and many Pixar films kind of deal with similar kind of tapping into your like, you know, most primal emotions. But there was something very special about like you know, growing up basically at the same age as Andy and like being at the exact same Mm -hmm. transition point with him that just made it feel like, yes, this is a movie for all generations, but like it feels like extra special for us in a way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know. Mm -hmm. So I mean, also it's like a great comedy at the same time, you know, just like some great laugh out loud moments. It's also kind of like a heist movie. So it's blending all these different genres. And um, I mean, Lotso is a great villain voiced by the great Ned Beatty. I mean, obviously the ending everyone knows is just one of like the most (laughs) defining endings of an animated film or any film of the past decade. Yeah, I feel like this was like a perfect little trilogy that made me a little mad that they made a fourth one, to be honest, but Mm -hmm. I still think they Mm -hmm. did well with the fourth one that... um, I'm so glad that they expanded this to 10 so that they could make room for a movie that resonated with so many people. So much to break down here. Yeah. <laughs> Every single Truly. part you said, yeah. I have things to say. Uh, if you you can two. go, Sophia. Okay. So I was going to say, this is also my number four. Ah. It came out right as I was about to go to college. I was still in high school, but kind of coming up on the end. And there's something for me that was so powerful about being that age and seeing a movie where I resonated with Andy's experience, but also a kid's movie that adults could love and an adult movie that kids could love. I really liked how it balanced both of those things and really had these intense themes that you said but also still tapped into that really quirky and fun component of the previous two films and just was a nice bow on the trilogy I love it and I also didn't realize until rewatch you guys might have already known this so apologies that Laurie Metcalf is the voice of Andy's mom Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah 
Didn't oh, know that iconic. until rewatch. Iconic. <laughs> <laughs> so I had just graduated high school, was about to move to college as well. So I like entirely identified with Andy in this moment. I remember watching it. <laughs> at a theater back home and like where I was not only during the trash compactor scene where I was 100% fearful that this was the end of the trilogy and this is how it was going to go and I was so heartbroken I remember crying in the theater with my friends I had no idea what was going to happen next and then another heartbreaking moment at the very end and it was just so shocking to me as an animated film that went this distance where usually animated films kid films don't normally go because they're trying to appeal and have this happy ending which it does in a sort of new way this was my number three so very close so when you think about one and two and even four if you want to is the third one your favorite or does it still rank maybe after one or even two for me it is number three honestly yes I still wow. have such a such a nostalgia and a appreciation for the first two that I just can't. I mean, mm-hmm. I appreciate all of the, you know, profound themes that we talked about there, but I think those first two movies are just impeccably made and mm-hmm. that, you know, you can't take a single scene out of it. It's just perfection like five stars. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of the same, but there's I don't know. Maybe it's just my own nostalgia that prevents me from putting this one above those two. I think they all have great villains, which you have to applaud the creators for. But this is tied for number one for me with the original Toy Story. It's so hard for me to place it above the original, but also it just builds upon what had already been created so well. I love it every time I rewatch it. It's my number two. So it comes after Toy Story. The first one to me is just, I think, perfection. It's just one of the all-time great Pixar films. It's just incredible work. But I do really like three. And two isn't far behind. It's very close. Okay, so Nick, this was your number three. So what's your number four? My number four is Inception. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We've kind of discussed it a little already. Christopher Nolan had had a few films before this, but this was really his big venture into these huge blockbusters that kind of took us to a different, not only way of thinking about movies, but his mind-bending genre that he's really built upon in his last few films since then. I love to just disappear in this film. I don't know. This this film does get a lot of slack, and I'm not here for it. I absolutely love it. Again, another score that I studied to a lot, mm-hmm. Time by Hans Zimmer is one of my favorite songs of all time, even. <laughs> so... <laughs> Any bad opinions, I will fight here. So <laughs> go ahead. I mean, it's my number three, so. <laughs> okay. No bad Amazing. opinions here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Somehow, I have Inception ranked higher than you do because it is my number three. Oh. Oh my god. So. Wow, amazing. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say it's very unlike me to have like a big action film by like a quote unquote film bro director to be like this high in my ranking here. But um, yeah, I still love Inception. I I know the exposition can be a bit clunky sometimes with having to like explain all the dreams within the dreams and like what it all means and all that. And um, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, Elliot Page has to really bear the brunt of that for most of it just like really questioning everything (laughs) but uh you know i mean the technical aspects are just alone enough to like put it into a top five here it's just doing things on a whole other level and i also think that it does have a really strong emotional core to it as well that doesn't always 
get talked about with Leonardo DiCaprio and Marianne Cotillard and that relationship is something that I really kind of keyed into at the time and the idea of like escaping into a dream world that might not be real but that it's like an approximation of reality and sometimes that can be enough for people and I found that to be quite moving obviously it's such a big spectacle but I I just look at like the writing of this movie and how it had to do so much between like not holding the audience's hand too much but also trying to make them understand but really crafting this movie that actually creates a discussion and it's not one of these movies that you're just like okay what a fun time at the movies now I'm gonna not think about it anymore like you're going to be thinking about what it all means by the end especially with a very ambiguous ending that it has with that beautiful Hans Zimmer track as you mentioned which also was on repeat for me especially in those like (laughs) early 2010s this was just a great score year for me I think it's one of my favorites there are more to talk about which we will get to but I agree with all of that I think this is a great prequel to Tenet where you really do need your handheld through (laughs) trying to understand all of the action that is happening but I think it's just mysterious enough where you can understand it but also have fun talking with your friends about trying to fit all of the pieces together yeah I think that with Nolan movies and I've been hard on this one in the past but after rewatching it <laughs> Like this year, I was really unexpectedly moved by the ending. Kind of like you were saying, Kevin, of just that relationship. I think I got bogged down by the exposition that was there and wasn't focusing enough on what really makes Nolan movies shine. And that's those set pieces. There are these just out of this world set pieces that exist and I think I like Nolan movies better when he's not or at least I don't see it as him being a philosopher and instead I see him as kind of this big kid playing with his trucks but I think with the relationship between Leonardo DiCaprio and Marion Cotillard and then the Edith Piaf song and then Marion Cotillard playing Edith Piaf in La Vion Rose that to me was interesting watching it back and I think that the spectacle of it is just so much fun and at the time after after seeing it, I think that a lot of it is this kind of dorm room philosophy where you think, like with a lot of Nolan's films, like, and what if you went into your dreams and in your dreams you could do this? And I think ultimately that's really fun. And much like Toy Story 3, Inception is one of those collective film going experiences that I'll remember as one that was just really enjoyable for the decade that was another one i saw with a bunch of friends and like half of them were just like i have no idea what just (laughs) happened somebody please sit me down and explain what just happened and then like the other half was like whoa just like couldn't stop talking about it for hours Mm -hmm. you know another christopher nolan the prestige i remember watching this with friends in my dorm room and having like a two or three hour conversation at like one in the morning of like oh my god what just happened breaking down the ending and i think that's part of nolan's appeal where he creates these films that inform such discussion but another part here i think that's notable is the cinematography both of you have kind of mentioned already but in terms of visuals that i remember there are so many from this film that i remember more than say the king's speech you know you have the scene with elliot and joseph with the mirrors under the bridge i think that's 
so iconic. You have the the dream sequence in the beginning that starts to fall apart. And then when he's on the beach at the very end, and I love the, the Joseph scene on the stairs and when the room is rotating, there's just so much fun with this movie. Must be seen on a big screen, but I also think that it works on a small screen, I would say. We know how Nolan feels about, like, you know, the theatrical <laughs> experience. So, I mean, it's one of the classic cases of, like, you know, seeing it in IMAX is just completely enhances your experience. But mm-hmm. again, I think on a story level, it does resonate enough that it does still work on your TV. Mm-hmm. For sure. Another thing, too, that I really love the casting. I think Leonardo DiCaprio is that perfect protagonist of the story. You believe him to have this emotional trauma that he's trying to work through. I think that Elliot Page, unfortunately for him or fortunately, is the perfect deliverer of the exposition. When I was looking at the casting for this, I was kind of surprised by some of the other choices. Like Evan Rachel Wood was one, and I just don't think that she would have worked in that part. And I also, Kate Winslet was supposed to play Maul. Oh boy. (laughs) And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the idea of an English actress instead of a French actress there is odd to me, especially with the Kate and Leo baggage that would come right. with it. Marion has this mystery to her that I think really works in that part. She's the perfect femme fatale kind of a mm-hmm. character. And the other one that I just think is funny is Tom Hardy, who is in quite a few of Nolan's movies now. But in this one, we get to see his whole face. He doesn't have a mask on the entire time, which was admittedly very nice for me as a viewer (laughs) yes agreed one of my favorites from him absolutely he has such a great like swagger in that movie okay so those were our number threes kevin what is your number two oh boy getting to like the real Mm -hmm. getting really deep in it (laughs) masterpieces here yes okay well this was hard actually to choose between number one and number two because i i love them equally but i just had to make a call which i'll get to later on why i picked my number one but my number two is Black Swan. You know how sometimes like you're super excited for a movie and you know sometimes that becomes like you're anxious about it because you're almost scared that it might disappoint you you know that's basically how I felt before Black Swan (laughs) so like it was easily my most anticipated of the year and I mean I watched the trailer dozens of times I think. I was obsessed with Natalie Portman as an actress, and I loved, like, the aesthetic of the film that I saw just from the trailer. So I was just, like, hyping myself up like crazy for this before I went Mm -hmm. into it. And I was not disappointed. So I found it to be so hypnotic, again, going back to, like, creating a mood and just very controlled in its vision. Just, like, very hyper-focused in a way that I think Darren Aronofsky has been able to do with a few movies, some to better success than others. But I just remember being so invested in the journey of Natalie Portman's character, Nina. And I, and I love what it has to say about just like trying so desperately to reach a level of perfection that you literally drive yourself insane. And how by the end of the film, she feels like she's finally done it. She was perfect. And yet Mm -hmm. she has like destroyed all the relationships around her. Um, She's completely destroyed herself, most of all, obviously. She's had these wild hallucinations. And that's all because her focus was so narrow, you know, and... You know, I was, again, around like 20 or so at the time, first year of college and being like very into psychology at that time and like having those like late night deep discussions with people, you know. So this is like one of those movies that I just totally, totally ate up. 
and especially because it's tackling all those things while also being very, very entertaining. Winona Ryder, everything she's doing in this is just <laughs> legendary. <laughs> it's basically going full camp, and yep. you know, all like the the body horror elements are really very visceral. I think like the theatricality of it all, I was just really taken with it. I think let's just talk about Black Swan now. So Nick, if we want to do like where it is in our list, ultimately Black Swan was my number two. Also my number two. What? We all wow. agreed. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> Rare. I think for me, Black Swan is the perfect 2010 child of two of my favorite movies ever, The Red Shoes and Vertigo. (laughs) I just Mm -hmm. feel like having the doppelgangers and the doubles and having this vision of what trying to be the best, to be perfect, to be an artist and a dancer specifically having those come together and having Natalie be the vehicle for that, it works so well for me. I think that this movie, it's one of those movies that I actually call a feel bad movie for me. Like when I watch it, I know that after I finish it, I'm not going to feel great for a little bit because it just is, it's such a painful, visceral experience. I really do love any film where you have a character kind of descend into madness. That's something I really enjoy watching, especially when you have an actor like Natalie Portman doing it. I love the body horror, the cuticle. Mm. Oh, God. (laughs) Every time. Every time. And I think, too, thinking about this one and how it did at the Oscars, one thing I was really thinking about when I was thinking about just Oscar history and this year is how a lot of times Best Picture nominees don't have a woman at the forefront, like leading the story. And this one, it passes the Bechtel test. And yes, it was written by men and directed by a man, Darren Aronofsky. But I think that the way that it talks about sex and abuse and power in a way that is very real, yet still like a phantasm type of movie, I really think is important to talk about for a Best Picture nominee. This is interesting coming from you and I know how you feel about Aronofsky films and how he portrays women yes I have like very complicated feelings about sometimes I feel like in Aronofsky films he like puts women through like pure hell for reasons Mm -hmm. that I really have to try to do a lot of work to understand like Mother and Requiem for a Dream and Black Swan but this one I feel like the way that he does that it is to tell a story that for me works on all levels but yeah complicated feelings but this one I really love. I love it so much. I think it's a perfect film. I think watching Natalie's journey through this movie, she does such an amazing job. On our Best of the 2010s pod that we did a while ago, we awarded Natalie Portman Best Actress of the Decade. I will stand by that until I die. So I I love her in this film. Starting the film in this dream sequence as the Black Swan and seeing her transition to this new character and how she really dives into it. And then the Mila Kunis of it all and her psychology, as you said, Kevin. The final fade out to white, I think, is just perfect on perfect ending. The score, again, my obsession here. Also, I feel like this is a movie that could have gone very wrong <laughs> and just like 
full trashy and like you know exploitative but i think it really manages to toe the line between like you know kind of indulging in some of those aspects but also having like such a fine attention to detail and just again constructing such a tight and contained film and yes i totally agree that natalie portman is just on another level here it's one of my favorite best actress performances of all time winners or nominees she's like Mm -hmm. top 10 for me we're all in agreement there (laughs) and for her to win too in this year that we talked about where you have really outstanding best actress nominees it just feels perfect like black swan Yeah, the perfect ending for her in many Mm -hmm. ways. Um, Yeah, and she just like completely swept the season. There wasn't even Mm -hmm. really competition, even though that's such an amazing category, like top to bottom, five fantastic performances that, Mm -hmm. you know, any one of them could have won in another year. For her to sweep, I think just proves the level of commitment she had to that character, which she, you know, studied for months to learn the moves and to, you know, do everything. So was she pregnant at the Oscars? Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember that red dress she wore, but I remember when Sophia, you and I I saw her oh my god <laughs> at the vox lux premiere and she is so gorgeous but before and after that movie i just I... yeah we had an experience watching that movie we saw it at the afi fest in la mm-hmm. we went to a screening there and we were in like the front row she's i think breathtaking yeah she's the we most so beautiful close. person i've ever seen in real life <laughs> I think. I believe it. Yeah. I do before we get to the social network. <laughs> Wait, it just I mean, we knew it was gonna happen. Well, sorry. Sorry for the for the spoil. <laughs> but we'll see if we all are in agreement. Do you think and this is kind of going into your podcast a little bit, Kevin, but do you think Black Swan was close to winning Best Picture? Where do you think no. it ultimately fell? I do yeah. not. But I do think it was top five to be fair, you know? Okay. And, you know, we always like to play that game of, like, what would have made it into a field of five. I do think Mm -hmm. that would, but um, I do think it's a little too genre-y and kind of off-putting, I imagine, to some Uh viewers, especially with, again, the body horror of it all and the fact that it's such a male-dominated academy, you know? I don't know if they would really reward a film with such a strong female presence, not to mention, like, Barbara Hershey is also wonderful in this. Mila Kunis, I know, came close to a nomination but she didn't end up getting that which is fine I would say but (laughs) you know it's still a good performance but um, Mm -hmm. yeah I mean in contention but not quite for like a universal like the whole academy goes for a movie like Black Swan we've just never really (laughs) seen that before so yeah I feel the same way it was one of those to me where when I rewatched it and was reading articles from back then like right before the Oscars a lot of people talked about how the movie that they got wasn't what they were expecting like they thought maybe it would be this erotic thriller or it would be this like very almost like early 2000s or 90s ballet movie and it just was not (laughs) I can just picture like an older member of the academy or the heavily male body of the academy just putting on the screener or going to a screening of this and just being like nope not for me yep I'm sure that happened I I remember the trailer being kind of leaning into those kinds of like almost I wouldn't say like fatal attraction type of situation (laughs) but like something on that vibe of kind of like a B movie Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean I think it's kind of from both ends really if like you were saying people thought it was this exploitative trashy thing then they see this and they're like oh this isn't quite as like fun 
as we thought it uh-huh. would be. But like other people would be like, oh, look, it's Natalie Portman as a ballerina, so refined. <laughs> and, you know, just like expecting something like super high art, maybe like the red shoes and getting something slightly different from that. So I agree that probably expectations probably hurt it a bit. Is it time for number one? I think so. Kevin, do you want to do the honors? <laughs> <laughs> what if I was just like, well, my number one is 127 hours. <laughs> <laughs> then it would have been fine if I spoiled it. <laughs> Somebody's YouTube video was ranking all of the best pictures and had 127 hours at number two. I was like, mm, I'm sorry. Absolutely not. Choices were made. Yes. It's a, it's a um, journey. Yeah. It's the social network. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like so much has yeah. been said about this movie that like, I don't even know if there's any original thoughts anymore. <laughs> I know there's like a contingent of people out there who find it a bit overrated and kind of overhyped, but I am not one of them, so I am going to completely (laughs) praise it. There is no question in my mind that The Social Network was the deserved best picture of 2010, and Aaron Sorkin I have kind of a love-hate relationship with sometimes, but the script is just a masterwork, I would say, from him. And I've found that so few films are able to really capture, like, making that bouncing back and forth structure, really having that work where, like, the present day scenes are set in one location and then we see the flashbacks, which is actually something that David Fincher just did again with (laughs) Mank, which I know you guys just talked about. But something like that I don't think really stuck the landing quite as well as this did, obviously. I mean, just the dialogue. We could just, like, spend so long just talking about the dialogue so many quotable lines a million dollars isn't cool you know what's cool a billion dollars yes (laughs) but David Fincher's approach to this I valued so much because I again remember the expectation going into this was like oh this is the Facebook movie and it was Mm -hmm. almost like a joke that people were just like oh they made a movie about Facebook have we completely run out of ideas or maybe people thought like this is just going to be like another biopic that's just about like a boring white man who was a genius you know (laughs) but this is like completely in its own thing and I think Fincher really dives so much deeper into this story and making it a real character study it speaks to so much anger with so many like straight white men who are just filled with anger because they think that they are the nice guy when really as is said in the beginning of the film they're an asshole so yeah i i I just love when fincher kind of takes these projects which you think are going to be one thing based on just like the subject matter and then really taking them and making them about something way deeper yeah also i think the cast is brilliant from top to bottom and the soundtrack every element of this film works perfectly the editing it is operatic the way you go between the flashback sequences in a way that is just so seamless you don't need the mank scene headings here just moves right along i think that trent reznor and atticus ross this is my favorite of their scores and i do love the gone girl one very creepy i also have issues with sorkin that we've talked about but I think that here, having Fincher to kind of rein him in a little bit, at least that's how I imagine it going. (laughs) And I think his direction and the editing, that quick 
dialogue that you get from Sorkin. It really works really well here. And I love a lot of the lines. The Rooney Mara one that you mentioned is just one of my favorites. And I wish I could use it on every person. (laughs) (laughs) And one thing we do have to talk about, at least I do, is something that, Kevin, I know you talked about this on your podcast. I remember when this came out thinking that Andrew Garfield was the standout of this movie. For me, I'm curious as to why it was just Jesse Eisenberg that was nominated when you have this really fabulous group of actors. Even Army Hammer gives a great performance here, and I've done kind of a 180 on Army Hammer lately, (laughs) but (laughs) I think he's great. Rooney Mara, Justin Timberlake even. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what you guys think about that. It's interesting talking about the acting now. On some mini segment we did, we tried to choose the best lead actor performance from certain years, (laughs) Uh and we couldn't agree on this year, so... I chose Jesse, yeah. And I think that was why I didn't, was because I found the other performances in this film should have been awarded more to me. I love Andrew Garfield. That should be no surprise, but I think he does an amazing job here. I think Army Hammer as the Winklevi was so fun, and the visual effects, the CG of it, really worked, too. That is one of the most baffling snubs for me, Andrew Garfield, because he did get precursor love. He was very much in the discussion, but I mean, when I look at that lineup, I mean, Jeffrey Rush obviously is kind of a legend, already won an Oscar up to that point. Uh, Mark Ruffalo had been working in the business for a decade or so at that point and finally kind of got a role that suited him, I think, really well. John Hawks was definitely one of those surprising ones that wasn't as much in the discussion, but I can't really quibble with that one. Christian Bale, I think, is amazing in The Fighter, so... He was just always going to get in anyway. But I mean, Jeremy Renner, I don't know if we need that nomination for the town. He's fine, but um, I don't know. I think maybe it's just part of the Academy maybe not fully getting the brilliance of the social network as much as critics clearly did. That maybe this should have been like a clear warning sign that this is probably not winning Best Picture if one of its best elements was not even nominated. I'll always mourn the loss of Andrew Garfield's nomination there and we'll pretend that his nomination for Hacksaw Ridge is actually the social network. (laughs) Yes. This one is interesting, too, because it did have such critical support. But then there's this very clear divide with the industry and the guilds skewing towards the King speech. But then the Hollywood Foreign Press got it right at the Golden Globes, which is so odd. I mean, they're not like really industry, you know, they are still just journalists. So, you know, in theory, I mean, we don't even know what the membership is, like who they are. But um, (laughs) yeah, I think they sometimes kind of still go off of buzz of critics when they don't really know which way to turn. I mean, they Mm -hmm. also would reward boyhood with best picture. And then that didn't really translate much to the industry. So I think it was just, you know carry over from like this is obviously the best picture here and uh and the industry had its say and they were like absolutely not (laughs) what won comedy and drama at the globes that year drama was social network and comedy was the kids are all right oh i oh my god which to be fair if i may list the competition (laughs) that it beat (laughs) here are the films that the kids are right beat at the golden globes alice in wonderland burlesque Oh my. (laughs) Red and The Tourist. Oh. Oh my God. The Johnny Depp? That's a year. The Tourist. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Angelina Jolie. That was that year. 
Wow. Yeah. Oh my okay. God. Yeah, those are not great. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, they had nowhere to go with that, but the kids are all right. <laughs> I wonder if that's what ultimately led to its nomination at the Oscars. Couldn't have hurt. Yeah. And Annette Benning won as well for the actress comedy. Oh. The Globes. <laughs> the Globes are going to globe. They sure I are. mean, to their credit, they rewarded David Fincher, best director. <laughs> I think another, before this came out, they had one of my favorite trailers also where they play the song Creep into like a teaser. And not only is that now one of my favorite songs because of its use in the social network and how perfect that was as kind of a metaphor for Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and now what it has become as the social media conglomerate. That is one of the best trailers Mm -hmm. that I can recall. And I think it's sort of low-key kind of kicked off a trend with trailers of doing like the slowed down cover of a pop song or a rock song Mm -hmm. that I just cringe every time. But that's just me. (laughs) I'm the same way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm gonna start raving about Promising Young Woman again and their version of Toxic. That was what just came to mind. Incredible. (laughs) I wonder too, I really do think that, and we kind of hinted at this earlier when we talked about the King speech, but it might be more upsetting to me that David Fincher didn't win best director mm-hmm. right like at least <sighs> at least do a split do yes. a split yeah. picture director right to just have them both go that way and one thing i just can't get out of my mind is just the idea that okay so post the social network we got gone girl and mank we also got house of cards and mind hunter and i'm wondering if david fincher would have won best director and if the social network would have won best picture would we get more movies from fincher in the interim instead of TV? Like, would he have gotten backing from studios? Would he have been more compelled to make features instead? Because even though I I like Mindhunter and I liked House of Cards for a bit, I'd take his movies any day. Yeah, I think that's possible. Yeah. I think we would have gotten more film from him, which can be seen as upsetting, but I think he got to curtail his career and do other things that he really wanted to and he's now come back with Mank and kind of made I would hope what he's really been wanting to make but likewise looking at Tom Hooper what we have since his win we have Les Mis the Danish girl and the infamous Cats So in a way, his career took off. I mean, making Les Mis is such an epic piece. But I wonder if it were switched, if, you know, David Fincher would have even gone further with that. Maybe. I sort of feel like David Fincher operates in a different mode than like super like into Oscar stuff. He's not like the most friendly like Oscar campaigner necessarily. Right. <laughs> I don't know if he has, I mean, obviously a lot of people want to work with him because he creates such incredible work, but he's not really like that director for hire as Mm -hmm. much as maybe Tom Hooper would be. I don't know. I sort of think Fincher would just go his own way regardless of what happened here. Maybe he would be offered more stuff, but Mm -hmm. he'd probably turn down a lot. Yeah. That makes me feel a little better, actually. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) Do we think that this was close? That the social network maybe just lost Best Picture? Or do we think it was just like a blowout for the King's speech? I would hope it was close. I can only imagine. I would love to see the numbers on this especially with preferential my gut 
is strange here because I kind of think that with the Christian Bale and Melissa Leo support and the acting branch being the biggest body of voters, that maybe the fighter got a lot of attention and the social network without the acting support, I don't know. And I think Inception 2, having the craft support that the social network did have in some cases, but Inception really pulled through with a lot of those technical awards. I almost don't think it was close. I agree. And it pains <laughs> me to say that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, the social network does walk away with three Oscars, including obviously adapted screenplay. But I think the film editing win is a sign that there was still clear passion for it. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just, I almost wonder if people did see it and they looked at it and they were like, maybe, I mean, I don't know, maybe some older members of the Academy didn't even know what Facebook was at all. Or they just considered <laughs> it like a fad that just yeah. wouldn't last. And like, why would we reward this movie about a fad, you know? Right. <laughs> Obviously, 10 years later, I think the discussion would be (laughs) much different. Oh, for sure. And I think, too, with everything that's been going on with Zuckerberg and just what a public figure he's become and just how hated he is with how big of a role social media played in the 2016 election and continued to play in this election, that I think if it did come out today, it would have had that gravitas of the Academy getting to say, this matters. This is important. We care about what's important. And they love doing that. So I think it would have oh, yeah. would have done better today. I think even the following year with the artist, I mean, I um, would only hope that social network would have beat the artists in that case but it's tough it was very short after the beginning of facebook even i don't know when i joined i know i joined twitter in 09 maybe but it was like around that same time and i'm sure people didn't know what facebook was or had kind of dismissed it as the younger generation again so yeah I see where they're coming from. It's like that classic meme. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's Christina Aguilera and she's talking about her (laughs) album Bionic. And she was like, maybe it was too ahead of its time for certain people. (laughs) And that's basically what we have now. (laughs) It's too ahead of its time. It is the way it goes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm glad that we're all in agreement that it was a great year for film. A lot of fun mm-hmm. ones that we really love, but the social network really does kind of separate itself from the pack in terms of potential best picture winners. Do we have any others that we want to talk about maybe briefly that were outside looking in on your top fives that we haven't discussed yet? I feel like we sort of had the same top six. <laughs> we really did. Yeah. <laughs> Just in slightly different order. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, I can talk about the fighter. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I'm like a David O. Russell apologist, but like, I do have to admit that sometimes I do like putting on his movies mm-hmm. if they're on cable. Like, it's kind of a fun, breezy watch. Um, you get to see all these stars and all the makeup and the costumes, and you know, sometimes that's fun. So, yeah, I do agree that that's probably a movie that did resonate with the Academy. It gets seven nominations, I believe, including two wins for acting. So, I do think it was very clearly in the top five. Five. Mm-hmm. And I love that entire cast. I love Amy Adams getting to show her range and Melissa Leo just totally hamming it up. And I do love Christian Bale as well in this. I don't know how people feel about that win and that performance. Personally, I think it's considering what we've gotten one of the better supporting actor wins of the decade. I really love Christian Bale. <laughs> 
Okay. I think for someone who's given us really outstanding performances I think this is his best one and I always like when an actor wins for their best performance I mean that's more than you can hope for with the Oscars in a lot of cases and I rewatched The Fighter last week and with David O. Russell movies I completely agree I you know you just with everything that's happened with him you just kind of feel that like oh should I like this should I not but right after it I was like oh I really liked that (laughs) Yeah. It's just a good, solid drama. It's just a film that lets these actors really go for it and shine. In a similar way, this is for Amy Adams, who's been nominated so many times, who I root for all of the time. This Mm. is one of my favorite performances from her. My love for David O. Russell starts and stops with I Heart Huckabees. Have you both seen this? Uh, Do you like it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Kind of, but yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Um, A very different type of movie. I didn't even know he directed this looking back at his filmography, but I'm like not a huge fan of his modern work with American Hustle, The Fighter, Joy. They're like fine movies, I think. From The Fighter specifically, I do love Amy Adams. I think her performance is amazing. And I love to hate Melissa Leo and Christian Bale's performances here too. I think they're just maddening to watch, which also speaks to their craft and how good they are and I do think the ensemble here is great I think the casting was spot on I think it's kind of funny how Mark Wahlberg was the only lead in this cast so to speak that didn't get nominated I mean he's fine yeah right it's just not a worthy performance and it's a good lineup so well we have the kids are all right in 127 hours that we really haven't spoken about I think that there are flaws to the kids are all right (laughs) Yeah, Mm -hmm. I know that it's somewhat controversial, especially within the lesbian community, just because of the twist that happens around the midway point of the film. But, you know, understandable. But it's a lot of great uh, cringe comedy that some people love, some people hate. Like I said before, I think Mark Ruffalo is just very charismatic and very natural and kind of my favorite part of the film. And I will stick up for Annette Bening here. (laughs) And I think one of her best scenes, obviously, is at the dinner table when she's, like, discovered what's happened. And also before Mm -hmm. that, she's, like, singing Joni Mitchell and everyone is like, oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, just, like, the look on her face, I think, is a good piece of small dramatic acting there and another thing that i just wanted to mention with this thinking back on it like 10 years later i think this is kind of a movie of its time i would say and i was just thinking about like the conversations that were had about the lgbt community in the early 2010s and like the late 2000s where we had like things like glee and modern family and there was just a lot of effort i remember at the time to just make it be like hey gay people are just like everyone else and see we're just like a normal family going through normal things and it was very just kind of like catering to straight people in a way and i feel like that has evolved slightly in the decade since so i don't know if you have opinions on that i don't think it's evolved as much as i would have hoped by now well that's true kind of mentioning the prom here and its depictions Mm. and kind of Mm -hmm. where it falters in its perspective and representation but I think here the the story was just too outlandish with what Julianne Moore does and I think it just plays into the drama of wanting to make this picture that is representative but I think fails for me 
the individual aspects of it are fine, but it's just so over the top with these kids finding their sperm donor and then the relationships that come of it. Just put a bad taste in my mouth. So I talked about how Black Swan was a feel-bad movie. This is a feel-bad movie for me that just doesn't work. I think, too, with representation and films evolving, I think that they have. But I also think, like, this is such, you're right, such an example of Hollywood giving straight people a movie to say, like, here is how you understand and can understand this community. And here are these two actresses who you love and you should love, Julianne Moore and Annette Benninger, wonderful actresses. The purpose that it serves is why I feel the way that I feel about it and why it isn't on my list. And 127 hours, I'm a very squeamish person. And <laughs> just James Franco in that film, I think that he actually has a great performance there. And it is a movie very much where it is just this, like one of those actors showcase pieces where it is kind of a singular performance film. But for me, it was something that just it dragged on in a way that was hard for me to watch. Would have been a great short film. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, when I look back on this lineup, I feel like 127 Hours is always the one that I either just, like, forget about that that was nominated mm-hmm. or just don't really have as much to say. Mm-hmm about it compared to the rest of these. I mean, certainly the visual style of Danny Boyle is probably an acquired taste. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it sort of works for a movie like this that's very like tactile and like you have to really feel everything. I mean, James Franco is solid. Probably a clear number five in that Best Actor lineup, I would imagine. <laughs> but I don't know. I think the reason that it got into Best Picture is just like the emotional experience maybe that you go through when you're watching it. I feel like it's very easy easy for people of all ages to kind of get what it's about Mm -hmm. you know and so like younger and older members of the academy can sort of find their way into it because it's such like an easy concept really i think the movie's just too indulgent it largely plays on the character's performance and transformation as he like starts to go crazy and imagine what his life has been and goes back to his childhood and tries to make these connections and in the end it's like his dream came true i think the visual style here just like gave me a headache as well i think there's too much intercutting and really images and scenes that were disconnected and like we didn't really need to see some of the visuals here the aerial shots were amazing they were outstanding but overall i agree it it was just too long there's one part where like his mouth is all bloody as if he's like this cannibal now too and he's like trying to saw his arm off but i'm like why is there blood all over his entire face when it's like he's using this knife on his arm it was just a lot of questions i have it's something i can't explain (laughs) yeah again i don't have as much to say about this as the others i don't know it is what it is Mm -hmm. so i've mentioned blue valentine are there any other films that you feel like were snubbed or should have been included in this list or swapped out i mean i was very passionate about blue valentine as well at the time even though it is very much a feel bad movie (laughs) (laughs) it is definitely one that i do not rewatch very much but every time i do i'm just like oh god (laughs) And kind of in the same vein is Rabbit Hole, which I do think beyond Nicole Kidman's performance 
is a really strong uh, just meditation on grief and that entire process. Also has a great little Diane Weist performance in there. Love her. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think both of those in the case of, again, two Best Actress nominees with films that deserved more credit than they did. I'm not surprised that they didn't reach Best Picture because, again, it's hard to take for some people. But those were my two big pushes because otherwise I do think that the Best Picture lineup kind of does reflect in some ways my top movies of the year. So that doesn't always happen. For me, Blue Valentine is definitely one of them. I loved that one. But in addition to, I think, subbing out 127 hours for Blue Valentine, I would have loved Ryan Gosling to have gotten in instead of James Franco. Oh, my God. I was yes. in like peak Ryan Gosling love back then. Like I just adored him. <laughs> so I really was uh, really sad about that one when that didn't happen. My other film that I think I would have put in is actually the Mike Lee film, Another Year. I really mm. love that one. I love Leslie Manville a lot. I love her performance in that. And I think she had a great case for Best Supporting Actress, even Best Actress maybe, depending on how you break down the screen time and whose story you think it really belongs to. But I would have loved to see another year get some best picture love even though it was never likely that that would have happened at least it got the screenplay nomination it did you know yeah yeah take what you can get but <laughs> i actually agree with that i that's one of my favorite mike lee films and i remember there was a big push for leslie manville to get that nomination from critics but again i, I think that's kind of a movie that was a little too isolating maybe mm-hmm. for some members there were two that were mentioned on your previous podcast relating to snubs, which were I Am Love and Animal Kingdom. I Am uh, Love has my favorite ending to any movie of all time. It's so rapturous. But then also Animal Kingdom is another small Australian indie film that we got Jackie Weaver's nomination for, which was so exciting. I don't mm-hmm. necessarily think it would have gotten in his best picture. Again, asking the Academy to plug multiple small films would have been a lot, but I I think it's worthy. I think it's another fun, thrilling drama that I'm glad it got the recognition it did, but could have deserved more even. I think Jackie Weaver should have won personally. That's my take. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with that at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like everyone's fighting about, oh, Melissa Leo or Amy Adams. And I'm like, Jackie Weaver. A case where like in an ideal world, maybe Melissa and Amy split the fighter votes and Jackie Weaver comes on on top. We always think about like these possibilities of what happens when multiple nominees come from the same film of how that'll go. And I think this is a case where it somehow went to one of those two and maybe should have gone to Jackie Weaver. Yeah. I just also wanted to throw out How to Train Your Dragon as yes, a movie that um, I think in a year without Toy Story 3 mm-hmm. <laughs> probably would have won Best Animated Feature and features another incredible score from this year. Yep. Totally agree. Also one of my favorite animated movies. I don't really like the sequel being nominated, but I think the original here is incredible. Maybe not as emotional as Toy Story 3, but I think just as worthy. So despite the King's Speech win, I think that there are a lot of movies on here that we really love and a very fascinating year at the Oscars. So Kevin, we had a question for you that kind of plays on your podcast. So for listeners, we said at the beginning, Kevin has a podcast called And the Runner-Up is so we were curious if you could see the votes for best picture from any race from the 2010s which year would you choose uh first of all i would like to see all of them yes (laughs) (laughs) 
because that would also make my job easier in figuring out what the runner-up was, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, this one would have been good, but I definitely feel like the 2016 race with Moonlight and La La Land would have been incredible to see just how close that margin was, because I feel like it was close, that like it just barely edged out La La Land. So that would be my number one, for sure. But then, I mean, I think 2013 was also a good competitive race between 12 Years a Slave and Gravity. Both of those movies, really. (laughs) I mean, there was a tie at the Producers Guild Awards between those two movies, and uh, would have been interesting to see. And I would also, I'm just cheating and saying like half of them at this point. It's fine. (laughs) I would also just be curious to see how well Parasite Mm -hmm. did in terms of winning, Mm -hmm. whether that was close or if it was just like there was no competition. That would have been fun to see. And then the last question we have for you, we've started doing this segment called Wild For It as a play on our title. And what is one thing that you're wild for right now? For some reason, I'm only thinking of TV shows at the moment. That's okay. Um, Just because I, look, I love movies and TV shows equally, but sometimes a TV (laughs) show, you can really just attach to it, you know, Mm -hmm. following their journey year after year. I guess I'll say Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is a show that was on the CW for four years and I just watched through the entirety of quarantine on Netflix and I am fully obsessed with it. I love all of these songs. Mm -hmm. Literally my Spotify unwrapped at the end of the year. My number one artist was Crazy Ex-Girlfriend cast. But I guess you could say I'm still kind of obsessed with that and I think Rachel Bloom is a comedic genius. So if there are people out there who have not checked that out, out yet i love that so much <laughs> fully on netflix i've never seen oh, it good so i'm going to be watching that for sure well good the opening song from the pilot was stuck in my head for years i <laughs> feel like i could still turn that on i think it's genius it was fun to watch and how many seasons did that go for four okay and they're between 13 and 18 episodes each I feel like I'll finish it soon. (laughs) Based on my watching behavior lately, I'm sure I'll fly through it. (laughs) I wake up like thinking of a different song from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend every day. (laughs) It's like so strange to me. I've never had that kind of sensation with a property before. So I love that. Yeah. So Kevin, where can we find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Kevin underscore Jacobson. And that's S-E-N, not S-O-N, as some people mistake. And my podcast is at Oscar. Oscar runner up. And then talk about your Patreon as well, because I know you have one for the podcast. Okay. Yes, I do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash and the runner up is, where we get into more Oscar nerdiness, where we discuss you know, other Best Picture nominees that we didn't talk about on the main show. Speaking of this year, we talked about The Fighter, and that had its own episode as saying, like, on second thought, was The Fighter the runner-up to The King's Speech instead of The Social Network, which we literally discussed earlier here. So so that's kind of fun. Yes, it's a lot of fun over there. I'm very excited to check out The Fighter episode, for sure, after talking about that one and recently loving that movie. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. This was so yes, much fun thank you. to talk about. Thank you. Yeah, I love this year and I loved talking to you guys about it. So thank you. So next time on Oscar Wilde, we will be talking about some of Netflix's biggest awards pushes. We've 
previously talked about the five bloods the trial of the chicago seven and mank left we have hillbilly elegy the prom and ma rainey's black bottom we'll also be getting the midnight sky and pieces of a woman later and probably into 2021 so we still might talk about those but we're going to focus on these three coming up next week and i've only seen two of them so far i haven't seen ma rainey's black bottom but i can already tell based on hillbilly elegy and the prom it's going to be a wild ride of an episode so very excited about that Well, thank you all for listening so much, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and wear your masks. Thanks, everyone. We will see you next week. Stay safe and wear your masks.